0: With that said, today, uh, before the reading of scripture, I was planning on coming out here in like, for um, our trunk or treat, I had this awesome costume. It was like this blow up shark costume. And it was like, uh, it's like me riding a shark. But I couldn't get into the thing backstage. So you'll have to get that on our time. And, and the reason why is I wanted to have this moment. Have you ever felt like you were like totally out of place? like you just didn't fit in or, 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 or you, were, you were crashing a party and you were not meant to be there or there was somebody crashing a party and they felt like an imposter. Today I'm gonna to be talking in a text where this seems to be going on. There seems to be this crash of values. I'm gonna be talking about this idea of when convictions, your convictions crash culture. When convictions crash culture, and I'm going to be asking the question that I want to ask you right now, when you think about the way you view the world and your convictions, here's the question. Are your convictions crashing culture, or does culture crash your convictions? Are your convictions crashing culture, or does culture crash convictions? In the text that we're about to get into, we are going to be looking at a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's a letter where he's writing to Timothy in the church of Ephesus. And we're going to be looking at a text that is probably one of the most controversial debated texts in the church. A text that has caused all sorts of division, all sorts of anger, that has been misused, that has been abused to do all sorts of hard things. And I believe it's a text that we need to wrestle with. Trust me, I did not want to preach through this text. I was thinking about Colossians 3. That would have been so much sweeter. But in our full story series, as we've been working our way through the whole story of scripture, starting in Genesis and making our way all the way to Revelation and Advent, we've had this conviction that when we, in our reading plan, come upon these difficult texts, we're gonna deal with them. Because as the church that God has given us, we believe our conviction is that the word of God is active that is useful for correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, and that we need to be a people that wrestle with these difficult texts. And so, as we do this, I would like to just pray, and then we will read the text, does that sound good? Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for this moment. So thankful, God, for that moment, I just felt the kingdom of God breaking in as we sang, it is your breath, in our lungs and we pour out our praise. Lord, you are here. God, I ask in this moment as we read from your scriptures that you would illuminate these words. I pray, God, that you would give us a focus. I pray, God, that you would give us an understanding by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would put a filter over my mouth, that I would only pray the things that are from you. I pray, Lord, that your grace be sufficient we trust you Jesus we thank you for your word we thank you that you are the living word may we experience you in this moment in your name we pray amen so if you could turn with me to 1st Timothy chapter 2 in your pew bibles I would encourage you to grab that and also to be to have Genesis uh, 1 also highlighted and if you could would you please stand with me for the reading of scripture At the end of the reading of Scripture, we have a liturgy here Well, I will just say this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you in union to say thanks be to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, says this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain silent, remain quiet, sorry. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self, self self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys see what I meant when I said a little controversial? Thank you, Tina. As you look at this text, it's important, first of all, to understand the context that Paul is speaking into. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. In the church at that time, if you look at the context, he is, he is talking in the context, he's, he's, he's exhorting the, the church in verse one to, to pray. It says in all occasions in your church services, in all places, he's not just talking to them though, he's talking to all the churches, he says to pray, to, to have supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people and he tells them how to pray. He even says that they may lead a quiet and peaceful life. And then he makes these, in verse eight, he makes this exhortation to the men. There seemed to be something happening in the context where there was this divisiveness. And Paul, if you've been reading in the reading plan, there seem to be these false teachers that are, are coming with heresies about the word of God about what it means to be the church, and Paul is telling Timothy that he, as he comes into this church, needs to correct some of these heresies, and one of the things that is happening is there seems to be this anger and discord between the men. And he says in verse eight that men need to be praying, lifting up their holy hands without anger. And it's a call for the men in the church to pray. And then he, go, he talks to the women and talks about how they're dressing. And in that context, this is probably speaking to some of these elite women in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in that community that have come with a posture that is not the posture that we are to come and worship. A posture of self-glorification as opposed to giving God the glory. And Paul was correcting them and encouraging them to think about the way that they dress, and he's talking, and he's talking to the church about the service. And then he makes these challenging, these challenging words. And the first point, as we look at this that I want to focus with you guys and gals, is this: as we, as we look at this, and we talk about convictions here. I wanna just make a note that I don't have the time to get into the deep specifics and nuances of the Greek and all the different things going on. I'm gonna try my hardest after a week of a lot of study and deliberation with our teaching team to share with you where our elders have landed on this, to share with you what we believe this to be true, and I feel confident in sharing with you that we believe this to be right. If you're interested in knowing more about this, I wanna show you on the screen some books that we've been getting after. If you could put those books on the screen, Alex. These are two books that I found really helpful. One is a commentary on Timothy um, from the Pillar series. I thought it was very faithful in helping us understand this. And then the other is a book called Woman in Ministry that talks about these two views. In Scripture, or in the church, there's really two views when it comes to women in ministry. One is, that, is, a, is a view called the complementarian view. And this is, this is a view where men are the leaders in the church. And the other view is an egalitarian view, which is that all are equal and all have a place in leadership. And so if you're interested in knowing more about that and getting into this beyond what we talk about in our, in our community groups and beyond this sermon, I'd encourage you to pick up these books or pick up this commentary if you wanna interact with this text. As we look at this, I'm gonna be sharing where our elders stand on this because I do believe that we are called to have convictions. We are called to be a church where culture does not crash our convictions. And so I believe with all my heart that this is the word of God and we must try our best to understand this, but we must do so with humility. We must do so with gentleness, all of the ways that the Lord has called us into this. And so as we look at this, I think the first point I wanna make very clear as we look at this and some convictions that we have, that I believe Paul is telling the church, and it's this, that women are learning. Women are learning. Chapter two, verse 11, Paul says this. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The Greek here, as Paul, is, he's telling Timothy, you need to create an environment the women of the church are learning, and the word for learning there is similar to like a disciple kind of learning. Now, I know that this can be very offensive to us in this day, but actually, in that day, this would have been very offensive on the other side, because in that day, in the, Jew, in the Jewish culture, and even in the, the Babylonian culture, women were thought to be less than, and that they weren't even able to learn, and they had no place to learn, and Paul here is saying, no, the women in your church, they need to be learning." This is a very similar word, a very similar posture, if you remember the story of Mary and Martha with Jesus, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And Paul is telling the church, the women in your church have a part to play. they must be learning. Don't neglect that part. They are equal as fellow disciples. We are called together in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. To make disciples means you need to learn. Disciple is a learner. In Timothy, it's all about the doctrine. It's all about the ways of God. The things we confess as a church. So Paul wants to make sure in this church in Ephesus that there is a culture of learning for all. Now there's this word, quiet. It makes us a little uneasy. Right, Tina? <laughs> and once again, remember, we are reading a text that was written in Greek, translated into our culture in English. Most commentators that I read, and I have read them on all sorts of different views, egalitarian, complementarian, almost all of them say this is not saying women should shut up. It's not saying that. It's not saying, I feel like it's just me and you right now, Tina. It's it's not saying that, that women need to be totally silent and that they can't even have an audible word coming out. In the, in the pillar commentary, I really like what the commentator said, Robert Yarbrough. He said, It is tempting in a Western setting, perhaps unavoidable, that something like a repressive shut up will be read into Paul's words. But Hestia, which means quietness and rest, rarely refers to a blanket prohibitive policy against spoken expression. This is attentive silence for the sake of giving someone a hearing. Have you ever been with someone where you're like trying to say something and they keep interrupting you? The call then is not for total verbal silence from a woman, but for them to exhibit a peaceful and a gentle attitude. This, I, this call for this silence has to do with this posture of learning. This posture of learning. And we know in the context that there was this Greek, this this religion of Artemis at the time that was happening. And people look at different inscriptions and know that at the time in Ephesus, there was women priestesses and they were elevated to high uh, statuses in the society. And so Paul is speaking to probably in the worship setting these women that are coming from this different pagan religion and and, and speaking up and interrupting and having this disruption in the church services. And so Paul is writing to this and he's writing to you and I, I believe, and telling us that we need to have this. Women need to learn, but with this posture of submissiveness and learning. Second, qualified men are shepherding. I wanted to use the word shepherding. This is the word, the language that Paul uses throughout when he talks about the leaders in the church. I'm particularly talking about elders and pastors. I want to encourage you to go and look at 1 Peter where he talks about this, this idea of shepherds who are under the shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is the head, who submit to him as we lead. It seems to me that Timothy is getting after that here. And follow along with me as I explain how I came to that point from this verse. It says this, in verse 12. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That quiet word is there again. I mean, since I do not permit women to teach. There's a lot of debate over if he's talking about teaching and authority, if these are two things or one thing. And I, I don't want to get into the nuances of that. I would encourage you to grab those books and, and read them and study this for yourself. But it seems to me that Paul is talking in a religious setting about the leaders, the pastors and the elders of the church that are exercising authority. If we read this verse by itself, without knowing the rest of scripture, we could say, only men should always lead. But That creates tension because we know, throughout this, in these convictions, that there's times when women are involved in different pieces in the church that are incredibly helpful to Paul. So this is saying that the shepherds are in a place we're qualified men. Notice I didn't just say men. If you keep reading this chapter, I would encourage you to read chapter three, and it talks about the men who are to lead in the church. It is heavy. It's a high bar. And Paul was writing here in response to something. I think it's important, just like we understood, this is not saying women should be totally silent, it's also saying women, it's not saying that women can't teach. I don't believe that. But it is talking about the shepherds and it's talking about the moment in worship services where there is the proclamation of the word through the minister that I believe he's talking about. The preaching of the word and the oversight, the leading of the church. This is where our elders have landed. Now understand, this is our conviction. This is what we believe. There are tons of churches that have landed in other places and I would encourage you to continue to debate that and understand that and honor each other and have liberty and love in these secondary issues. But here at Cornerstone, we believe this this to be true. And here is why. I believe the reason why this is a conviction of us, I believe why why I think uh, Timothy is not just writing to just Ephesus here. Why he's writing to all of us is one, he says in all places, he's not just talking about Ephesus, but then he does something very interesting. Paul does something very interesting in his argument. He gives these statements, these convictions, and then his argument is not cultural. He doesn't give an argument to say in your culture, This is happening. He goes back to the word, to the Torah, all the way back to Genesis to make the argument. He's using scripture to interpret scripture. And so we see here in verse, we see here that he gets after that. But we must understand that he's not saying that women have no place. Not at all. If you keep reading in 2 Timothy, there's this lady named Priscilla and Aquila. You have heard of them? They were key leaders in the church. Priscilla was a key teacher of Apollos that is used to do incredible things. You go to Philippians 4, he, he speaks about, about other women involved in leadership. You go to Romans 16 and there's ladies that are involved in different places all throughout the church. Paul has these convictions that women are involved, that they're learning, that they're doing these things. Just you don't seem to see, I haven't seen any place where they are in the shepherding piece. The lead shepherd of the church at that point. At that point. It seems to me that this is where Paul is talking about this difference of different roles for men and women in the church. And so his argument is not cultural, it's from scripture, just like Jesus. If you remember, Jesus used a similar argument when he was talking about divorce. He would go back to the Garden of Eden and, and use this. So look at what happens. First, Paul is making this point as he talks about men and women, he wants us to understand that it's not about being less than. He says, God created man to shepherd, and woman to help here. Look at verse 13 says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now he's not saying for Adam was better than Eve, he's talking about order. He's talking about the order of creation. I find this very helpful and very important. He's not saying that woman is less than, but he's actually saying that we were created distinctively different with different roles. And actually, if you read the, the, the account in Genesis, you see that it comes to this point, God says, it is, God, God says it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and the first thing that is not good in the creation narrative is what? Man is alone. He needs the woman to help. The woman's job as the, the helper in this relationship is not passive, it is active, it is necessary. And we see this and we know when it says that God created man, mankind in his own image, he created male and female in his image. Together we reflect the image of God, not separately. But the order is important. Once again, I, I wanna call to this uh, commentary that I found really important. It's that in that order, man and woman are equal in standing before God, but not I- identical or interchangeable as to what God expects of them relative to their created sexual giftedness. Their simultaneous unity and diversity are stressed. It says in Genesis, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, that's the unity. Male and female, he created them, that's the diversity. The distinction between the two gives a basis for differing responsibilities in certain areas in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So he's talking about these different roles, these different parts to play here. And It seems to be here that he wants us to know that the order matters. And you know in the creation account, when God creates man, he creates him to what? To guard the garden, to keep the garden. That is the, the, the call for him to work. We see this. We see this call for man to do that in the creation account. That's part of the order, and the woman comes along and is created to help him. But we recognize it's not, it's, it, If scripture does not mean that they are less than. Galatians 3, 28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal. We all have the same dignity. We all have the same value. I don't know that I can say that enough because this text has been used and abused to say things that is not there. It is, Paul is prohibiting something, but we use it to prohibit things that were not meant to be prohibited. So it seems to me here, as we look at this, that yes, there's these different roles, but also Paul goes on to say switching the order led to our fall. And that's a very general way of saying this, so I wanna encourage you to dig more into this. But in verse 14, he says this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul is not saying here, Adam didn't sin. He's not saying that. He's not saying, it's Eve's fault. He's not saying, man, those women that we thought he gave us that were helpers, it's all their fault. Actually, quite the contrary. Remember, man was created to guard the garden. And in the creation account, in Genesis chapter three, you have this interaction of the serpent with Eve. Remember the story. And the serpent very similar to the false teachers that are happening in Ephesus, right? Is telling these lies. And it says that he's talking to Eve, but why is the serpent in the garden? Why is Adam not guarding the garden? Why is he not in this conversation? You see, the roles have been switched. The order, and I believe that's what Paul's getting after here. He's saying the order has been switched. He's not saying Eve sinned and it's her fault. He's saying no, the order was switched and there was a trespass and they both trespassed. He says in Corinthians 15, he says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be all made alive. Adam has a role in our fall. If you look at the fall narrative, when God comes and confronts Adam and Eve, who does he talk to? He says, Adam, where are you? Seems to me, here, Paul is telling the church some really important, difficult things and convictions are crashing culture, but is culture crashing our convictions. And there's a major debate throughout, especially about this next verse. Says this. uh, Well, first I'll make the point. As we look at this, I wanna understand that as we wrestle with this text through faith in Christ, we flourish. As we wrestle with this text through faith in Christ, we flourish. Look at how I got to this point. Verse 15 says, yet she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now there's a lot of debate about the pronouns in this text. Who is the she? Who is the they? Seems to me if you're reading through this and we've just talked about Adam and Eve, he's talking about Eve. And I do not believe Paul is telling us woman, you are saved by having babies. <laughs> Perhaps something about the pain of having children. But it seems to me here, and he, there's a Greek word that, said, that, that makes it read like the childbearing. Like he's not necessarily talking about all childbearing, but he's talking about a particular childbearing. And we go, back to, we go back to Genesis and we see in the curse that he says, out of the woman there will come a seed. And the seed will crush the head of the serpent. And even though we've fallen, even though this order we've messed it up and we are so, we, 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 sin has entered in, one will come. The Messiah will come, will, will make his dwelling among us, live a perfect life, die and conquer sin and we will find unity, we will find freedom in Christ. And I believe here Paul is talking to you and I about Jesus. He's talking about the whole story about how all, po- all things point to Christ. And when he says the woman is saved through childbearing, he's talking about the seed that we've been following since Genesis all the way through Malachi with all the prophets saying this, with David saying this, that a greater David is coming, that a greater Moses is coming, that a greater Jonah is coming, that Jesus is the one. We've been preaching this all year. And he's telling you and I, in this moment, that in Christ we flourish. And the they, there's a lot of debate about what that they is, I believe that's man and woman. All of us. Look at what he says here. He says, through childbearing, through the childbearing, If they continue, what? What is it? In faith and love and holiness with self-control. As we wrestle with this text, we think about this text, I continue to ask my question. What is crashing what in your life? What is crashing what in your life? Is culture crashing convictions or convictions crashing culture? In our culture, I think it's been an incredible blessing that women have been lifted up in so much abuse and so much ways that mankind has, has just twisted our call. And sometimes we go so far, in this case, I believe, where our convictions tell us there's some sort of order here in the church. Now, hear this. I'm not talking about order in the public sphere. I'm not talking about order in other places. I'm talking about in the church, and in particular in Cornerstone Church, through our elders' convictions. What is crashing what in your life? We could say this about this particular instance. We could say this about instances that we face with other social stuff happening. And my hope as we ask this question that we continue to come back to faith in Christ. We continue to come back to the truth of who Christ is. That ultimately we all submit to him and his leadership. And there's a beautiful unifying truth of who Christ is. And as I was praying about this, I was reminded of a pastor from when I was young who said this, his name was Bruce Giles. He said, we make decisions based on what we value, not on what we believe. We wanna say we make our decisions on what we believe and we pray that our belief in, in, informs our values. My prayer is that we are a church that values the gospel. My prayer is that we are a church that values the word of God. That we are a church when we stand for the reading of scripture, when it says things that are hard, that our culture tells us that is really wrong, we would say, we we believe this to be true. I would love to be convinced otherwise. Trust me. We value this. Heard a story in one of the commentaries from a lady named Claire Smith. She talked about how there was this, this, this uh, university lady from an ethnic background who was attending um, her church and she, was, and she was given this text for the first time. A high academic, high, really, really smart. And she asked her, is this text difficult for you? And the lady said, no, it's easy. Paul is saying women shouldn't teach in church because that's the way God wants it. It would be easy, Smith notes, to suppose that her ethnic cultural background probably made it easier for her to do that. But Smith continues, but can you see that the opposite might also be true? That our culture influences our reading of the text and that many of the difficulties we find in it might exist because of our culture and our personalities and not because of the text itself. So as we read this, I pray we have a humble posture. I pray we're not a church that just says, man, believe this, or you are really messed up. But I do think we're a church to say, these are our convictions, we believe this is right. And it's okay to think other other ways are wrong. And we do so with a humble, gentle, and we don't affirm more than this. The church called The Village Church, they did some research on this and they, 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 they submitted a, a list of all the things they affirm and deny that I found really helpful. I wasn't sure if I was gonna read this to you, but I wanted to. I think it resonates well. They said this, we affirm that both men and women have been created in the image of God and are entitled to the privileges held accountable to the responsibilities that come with reflecting our creator. But we deny that either gender has been given or is entitled to greater dignity in society, the home, the church, or the kingdom of God. We affirm that both men and women are needed and necessary for the health and ministry of the church. Godly men and women should be visible partners in the corporate life of the church, deploying their diverse gifts for the good of the body. Simply put, all Christians contribute to the ministry of the church. We deny that the church can flourish without brotherly, sisterly partnership. We deny that a church can exist in which the men flourish and the women do not, or vice or vice versa. We affirm that the role function of elder is reserved for qualified men. Elders are distinctly responsible for overseeing the church and preaching the word. We deny that the role of elder being withheld from women diminishes the importance of their influence in the church. The indispensable help women were created to give can and should be exercised in all manner of roles and offices in the church excepting those reserved for qualified men. We affirm that all members of the church should be in glad submission to the elder body and that all should be in glad and sacrificial submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We deny that all women are subject to the leadership and authority of all men. Say that again. We deny that all women are subject to the leadership and authority of all men. Further, biblical submission is not indicative of subordination or inequality as seen in the son's submission to the father. We affirm that complementarianism rightly practiced will lead to the recognizable flourishing of both sexes. We deny any version of complementarianism or theological position that leads to the subjugation, abuse, or neglect of any man or woman. We strongly denounce any distorted view of Scripture that contributes to the belief that biblical manhood or womanhood include or permit practice such as marginalization, subjugation, intimidation, neglect, or any form of abuse. We affirm that all men and women have been created in the image of God, whether single or married, we deny that single men and women must be married to be meaningful participants in the corporate life of the church. We deny that single men possess any authority over single women. The way that they love and serve their sisters should not, not patronize, victimize, or show force, but rather should be the fruit of brotherly love and vice versa. Like that written out, just email me and I'll send it to you. If you think about this, as we reflect on these hard truths in Timothy, some closing thoughts to so the men. I believe Paul is writing in the church that need to step up. I'm not saying that from a place of anger or disappointment. It seems to me that Paul is calling men to lead sacrificially, to be leaders in their households, to be the ones that are bringing their children to church and studying and growing and for women to help. The help there is not passive. It's incredibly active and incredibly important. Your voice matters. You're part of the body of Christ. Singles, you're a gift to the church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He tells us this. Above all church, We need Jesus. We need Christ to reign. We need the one who was born a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. That is who our faith is in. In a few moments, we're going to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is what unifies us. This is what brings us unity. Even when difficult texts like this, we can debate in our community groups. And I wanna encourage you, debate. I wanna encourage you, study the scriptures. But right now, our call is to eat. And I pray in a few moments, I'm gonna gonna pray, and I'm gonna lead us in the Lord's Supper. I pray that right now, you have an appetite for it. I pray that right now you have an appetite to eat of the bread and drink of the cup and to truly be united in these truths. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, I'm reminded that when you came here to earth and you dwelt among us, Oh, Jesus, you modeled to us an incredible love. And Jesus, you had such value and love and care for man and woman. You did not see any sort of differences or any quality, God. Lord, we know the first people that you spoke to, that you entrusted with, with, with the message of your resurrection were women. And God, I just pray, God, this feels so difficult. I pray, Lord, that you, in this moment, would continue to unite your church. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church of convictions, that we would have convictions based on your blood and your work. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us that we would grow under you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do mighty things in your church. I pray, God, that you would continue to to revive and, and by your spirit, God, that you would work and move. I pray, God, as we prepare our hearts to eat the bread and drink the cup, that we would experience the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That we would see your love and your grace. we would taste it and see your goodness, God. Pray, Lord. That in the same way that when you dwelt among us, you didn't put up walls. It wasn't in an us and them. You came and you were light that was shining in darkness. I pray, God, that we would be light that shines in darkness. Ask for your wisdom and your grace in all of this. We pray this together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.